We'll be reading from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning and welcome to the Leeward campus. I'm Tom, and uh, we are really glad you're here on this beautiful day. Well, there's something about the darkness that is deeply unsettling. I remember on a family vacation many years ago when we stopped to visit a cave. And I still remember that moment when the tour guide had us count one, two, three, and then shut off all the lights. I had never experienced total darkness before. I couldn't see my hand in front of me, and it felt like I couldn't breathe. It seemed like we stood in total darkness for an eternity. I think it was about a minute until the lights came on. I was never so glad for lights. Because darkness, however we experience it, is, let's just say, kind of creepy, isn't it? Especially when it's really dark, it's really creepy. But why does darkness do this to us? On a physical level, we like to see where we're going. I think most of us who can see. But I believe the fear of darkness, the creepiness of darkness, goes to something deeper within us. The unsettling reality of physical darkness, I believe, shadows another kind of darkness. A spiritual darkness and the presence of evil that invisibly lurks there. Perhaps this is at least one reason why so many of us, whether we have embraced Christ or we are searching him out or whatever our faith position is, why we put up lights during Christmas. Now, if you have great taste like me in movies, you're supposed to laugh on that one. Some of you are going to laugh more. One of my favorite Christmas movies is, to me, a classic. (laughs) National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. It's totally awesome. There's something about Clark Griswold lighting up not only his house, but the whole neighborhood. It's something that goes beyond determined engineering and artistry. I love that moment. Again, if you haven't seen this movie, you're not living a true American life. (laughs) When Clark Griswold plugs it in finally, and it finally works, and the entire house is ablaze, Clark's face beams with joy, and his heart beats with hope. But just maybe, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation is more than just great laughs. 
Maybe, just maybe, the movie resonates with us because there is a tacit recognition that the world we live in, you know, is a really dark place. So somehow, lighting up at Christmas time brings us a sliver of needed hope. Because for many of us, Christmas, I mean, let's be honest, is a mixed bag, is it not? On one hand, Christmas is something very celebratory. But on the other hand, it confronts us head on with the painful reality of human brokenness and evil. The problem of evil confounds and confronts each one of us, young, old, rich, poor, no matter who we are. So how do we explain it? How do we understand it? How do we deal with it? And perhaps the most pressing question under a Sunday smile, is there truly any hope to overcome it? For the Christian, embracing an all-good and all-powerful God, the problem of evil brings tension to our faith. After all, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, why does God allow evil to exist? Isn't it true we wrestle deeply why it seems that Evil has such a long, long leash. For the Hindu or Buddhist or adherent Eastern religion, the problem of evil is simply dismissed as an illusion. This is convenient, but less than compelling. Because when evil strikes close to home, not as an abstraction out there, but when it affects us and our loved ones, wow, it's a hard sell to accept it as just a meaningless illusion. We do know, don't we, how very real evil is. Just ask the grieving family members of the victims of the recent Las Vegas and Texas shootings. They will tell you how real evil really is. But for the atheist, the problem of evil is also a thorny one, is it not? Evil is hard to deny or explain from a purely materialistic, closed universe framework. I find it interesting, perhaps the most vocal and a very brilliant atheist named Christopher Hitchens, who died recently, wrote a piece entitled, get this, The Obituary of Osama bin Laden, who again, as you know, is a bad terrorist, a religious terrorist. Hitchens says it this way. He says, I thought then, and I think now, that Osama bin Laden was a near flawless personification of the mentality of a real force. The force of Islamic Jihad. And I also thought and think now that this force absolutely deserves to be called evil. 
seems to me, with all due respect, Hitchens' repeated use of the word force sounds suspiciously non-material and supernatural to me. How about you? Hard to get around it, isn't it? Evil is a thorny problem for everyone. Whether it's darkness in our own world or the darkness in my heart or your heart, we all wrestle with it. The question, the most pressing question, is really not whether evil exists in our world, but is there hope that things can get better? Is there a solution to the darkness in our world and in our hearts? That in his brilliant prologue, the gospel writer John addresses head on, in the very beginning, the darkness in the world and in our hearts. And he gives us some really good news. Good news that brings hope to a dark world this Christmas. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you'll join me as we explore some of the most brilliant writing of Greek history in the prologue. The Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel in the New Testament. Last week, we began our Advent series exploring the opening verses of the Gospel of John. St. Augustine, 15th, 5th, century, 5th century theologian, said of the first few verses of John that in front of every church in the world, these verses should be written. How important they are. And we discovered last week that John's words, in a brilliant literary way, like an antiphonal choir, echo Genesis 1. In other words, John writes and wants us to keep Genesis 1 in mind as a constant companion. It's the constant echo. While Genesis uses Hebrew, John uses Greek and brings these two worlds together. With literary flair and stunning brilliance, what John is saying to us as we enter the prologue of his gospel is there's a bigger story in play here. And from the very beginning, Jesus said, or Jesus, I'm sorry, John said, Jesus is the central character in the story. And he uses a brilliant word, an open welcome mat to the world called the logos to describe Jesus. The word is translated in the prologue. What is surprising to us is unlike the other three Gospels, John introduces his Gospel not by us looking into the manger of Bethlehem, but looking behind the curtain of the manger in Bethlehem. John wants us to open our eyes and see the cosmic Christmas story in the proper context in which the manger in Bethlehem is rightly located. John tells us that the cosmic Christmas story is the bigger story that frames Jesus' redemptive mission as he arrives in this dark, sin-ravaged planet as a helpless boy, a baby, in a Bethlehem manger. We need to understand right off the box that Christmas, for John, is more than a time to simply remember Jesus' birthday. It is a time for us to find true hope in the dawning of the true light that has come to defeat the darkness in our world. 
Jesus, the true light, has come. That's the big idea. And John wants each of us to embrace the light in a persuasive way. So in verses 5 through 13, he gives us three consecutive logical reasons why we should embrace the true light. First, in verse 5, we notice that the true light overcomes the darkness. Notice what John says. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Some translations translates this word, the darkness and light, says the darkness does not comprehend it. It's not primarily an intellectual construct. That's not a best translation. It is one of an existential contrast of overcoming it. Very important to understand. Here in verse 5, John opens the door to the world with this inviting welcome mat, and he introduces to us two universal religious metaphors. Virtually universal in all religious frames. Dark and light. He welcomes all readers, Jewish and Gentile readers, and he gives us a hopeful one. And the hopeful idea is this, that the darkness is simply no match for the true light. Eugene Peterson, as he often does in the paraphrase, his paraphrase, the message knocks this thing out of the park from an interpretive standpoint. And this is what Eugene says. The life light blazed out of the darkness, and the darkness couldn't put it out. That's it. John's language of the light shining in the darkness intentionally echoes the original creation account given to us in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where we read, right, there was darkness over the deep. And in that darkness, all of a sudden in Genesis, God speaks. And God said what? His first words, let there be light. And there was light. Here in the prologue, John connects the God of original creation to the God of new creation. The God who will bring salvation to the world. John's usage of darkness moves us in the big story from Genesis 1 now to Genesis 3. When darkness and the darkness of evil enters God's good world. Genesis 3 tells us that God's good earth becomes the hideous playground of the evil one. Humans are caught up in a cosmic rebellion where sin and death unleash disintegration and havoc to God's good world. But Genesis tells us this is not the hellish end of a hopeless story. There is in Genesis 3 a glimmer of light that emerges in the deepest darkness of Genesis 3 where we find a hopeful promise that the offspring of the woman one day will deal a mortal blow to the offspring of the serpent, the evil one. John is connecting this and he is saying the glimmer of light foretold to us in Genesis 3 is not a glimmer anymore. It is ablaze. It's shining brightly in the darkness. 
This is Jesus, the true light. This is what the prophet Isaiah told hundreds, told hundreds, of, years, hundreds of years before in chapter 9, describing this light as not a mere abstraction, but an incarnation. A child is born to us, Isaiah says. A son is given to us. Emmanuel, God himself with us. And notice, John frames this metaphor of light, this person of light, as the path not only of human illumination, the light of men, but also the means of human transformation. Don't miss that. The darkness in the world and in the human heart is no match for this light. Yet it was easy for John's readers in the first century, and it's really easy for us, is it not? to be overwhelmed by the darkness in us and around us. In our information age, we are constantly bombarded with so much darkness in the world. Doesn't it seem, at times, it seems this way to me, that evil and darkness has the upper hand, that it's winning out over the light, that our world is getting darker and darker. It's all too easy to become discouraged, Cynical and hopeless. And have you noticed often that even our heroes in movies are increasingly becoming the anti-hero? Does this not say in our times hope that light will comprehend, will overtake the darkness seems like an illusion? How do we respond to all the darkness in our hearts and in our world, in our communities, in our neighborhoods? There are many ways we do this. We simply often ignore the darkness, right? We try to do that. We try to numb ourselves with alcohol or drugs, or we cocoon ourselves in layers of economic security and comfort. Or instead of ignoring it, we, we just want to be distracted and not deal with it. So we stay frenetically busy, constantly glued to our screens or our smartphones. Or we may try to overcome darkness ourselves. We're going to do it. And we convince ourselves, and we have for a long time in human history, that if we can just be better educated, have better technology, we'll push back the darkness. And if people are just less ignorant. I'm not advocating ignorance or lack of education. But if people were just less ignorant, if they were just better educated, if they just had better tools of technology, the human heart would be better, it would be in better shape, and the world would be in a better shape. So how's that working for us? Just say Barbarians are barbarians, whether they're educated or not whether they have the latest technology or not. Because neither education nor technology, however good that can be, can alter the brokenness of the human heart. It cannot push back the darkness. What about political activism and having bigger and more overreaching government? How's that working for us today? Government, 
Political activism can, can be good things, but it can never overcome the darkness. Or we may look to religion or moral willpower to overcome the darkness. But that's no match for darkness either. How do we understand religious devotees who are more than willing to blow themselves up along with others in the name of God? See, as sincere as human attempts have been throughout history and presently to overtake the darkness in our world, the story of the past and present is that we as human beings fall miserably short despite our many attempts. We are individually and collectively no match for the darkness. But John is saying something here. He is saying there is someone who is a match for the darkness. The light has entered human history and stepped right in the darkness, smack dab in it. And this is the second truth. The deep, intricate connection of logic. That the light has overcome the darkness, but it's Secondly, stepped into the darkness. Now notice in verse 6 or 8, if you're following along, I trust you are, John moves very quickly from cosmic history to human history. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And if you've read the Bible for a while or you even haven't, you go, what is this? At first glance, it seems strange that this guy named John all of a sudden pops out of nowhere. I mean, this amazing prologue of such beautiful words and imagery, all of a sudden there's this dude right there, John. We know who this John is. It's not the writer of the gospel. It's John the Baptist. We know this from John chapter 3 and the other gospels. What is going on here? Seems like an interruption. It's not. I mean, you'll notice that John, the gospel writer John, is presenting a crucial and credible historical witness to Jesus coming to earth. Deuteronomy 19.15, for this Jewish audience, reminded us that truth had to be verified by witnesses. So John the Baptist is one of the eyewitnesses John is going to present, John the author, that verifies the truthfulness of the gospel, truthfulness of the good news. But what is even more compelling is the irony and tragedy that is immersed here because John the Baptist, his credible and compelling witness, he was like the superstar of the first century. But even though they had a superstar witness to Jesus being the true light, when Jesus stepped into the darkness, they failed to see him. Look at me at verses 9 through 11. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The gospel writer John is saying here with the greatest sense of incredulity, imagine the one who created the world not being welcomed into his world. How can that be? How can he be so rejected? Why would anyone who encountered Jesus, the true light, with all his beauty and glory, reject him? Rather than fall before him in worship to turn their back on him. Why? Well, John does not, the writer John, there's a lot of Johns here, I'm sorry, it's confusing. John, the gospel writer, does not answer it here, but he does through Jesus' very own words in chapter 3. 
Jesus says in chapter 3 of John, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works, their life, lifestyle, were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his life or works or actions should be exposed. Jesus contrasts light and darkness here, doesn't he? And Jesus is saying, well, darkness, darkness may be fearful to you and me. Let's be honest. We not only run from darkness, we also run to it. We say we don't like darkness. Isn't it true we go there often? Why? Because the closer we get to the true light, the more exposed we feel and the more dirt we see. I was reminded of this recently. Every now and then I do some cleaning. You can ask my bride, Liz. She's sitting here this morning. Every once in a while I do that. And I try to clean windows. Windows are a challenge for me. But it was an overcast day, and I'm doing my best to clean these windows. I'm thinking, I'm getting these suckers. They're looking good. But then the sun comes out. You know, and it's this time of year where the sun is low, so it shines just not like this, like this. And it's like, unbelievable. It's like dirt everywhere. How did I miss it? It all looks so clean. And then the light shine is like, it's just yucky all over, like scum. Why? Because there's a truth. The brighter the light shines, the more imperfections we see. That's true of cleaning windows or cars, but that's true of our own life. I was in a hotel not too long ago. I don't usually do this. I don't think I'll ever do this again. But some of you do this every day, I feel for you. There was this makeup mirror with a light that's amplified. You know, I understand why we do this, but it's a dangerous thing. And for some reason, I turned this thing on and look at it. I was like, golly, no. <laughs> Come on. It's true. Wow, there was stuff I hadn't seen. Just... Why is this so true? See, if you don't want to see the dirt, stay in the dark. But if you want to deal with the dirt... You have to get in the light. That is the choice each of us must make. John is giving us this choice. When we encounter the true light of Jesus, we are going to see our dirt. We're going to see our broken, sinful attitudes, our idols, our hurtful words, our harmful actions. We can't help it when the true light shines on us. And Jesus is saying the main reason a person would choose to live in darkness rather than embrace the true light is not because primarily a lack of intellectual plausibility. It's rather moral accountability. That's the rub. Jesus, the true light, calls us to repentance, to a heart change and a lifestyle change 
Jesus, the true light, gives us radically new hearts and guides us down the path of living radically different lives. See, the true light, when you encounter him, not only pushes back the darkness, it transforms how we see and what we love. Most importantly is how we see him. I love the song, Here I Am to Worship. Did you catch the words we sang? Light of the world, you stepped into darkness. You opened my eyes and let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with you. John says, Embrace the true light, the light that has stepped into the darkness, into your darkness. Why? First, this true light can overcome the darkness. The darkness is no match. Whatever darkness you face and feel is no match for the true light. Secondly, the true light has stepped into the darkness of your world and this world. John says, that's a big deal. Why? Third, the true light makes new life possible. This is not a false hope. This is as true as any true of the universe. Look at me at verses 12 through 13. But to all who received him, don't you love that little contrast there? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John is saying, while many rejected the true light of the world, some received the true light, and they saw the true light, and they placed their complete trust in him. And the same power of Genesis 1 of, new, of original creation becomes the power of new creation in Jesus. Those who receive him are given brand new creation life. They are born from above and they become a part of God's family. Isn't it interesting and compelling that quickly after John 1, we are given a story of a very religious person named Nicodemus who encounters Jesus, the true light, and sees the darkness of his own heart, his religious heart, and Jesus tells him, Nick, you need to be born again. You need a new birth. And we find these words of Jesus in that story. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus says, whoever believes in him, the son, the light is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. See, none of us, not one of us here this morning or anyone hearing my voice has to be lost in darkness. We can come to the true light. 
on the cross, the sinless Son of God took on himself our sin and the darkness of evil was dealt a mortal blow. No wonder St. Augustine, again that brilliant 5th century philosopher and theologian said it this way, he described the cross as the great lampstand of human history. John introduces us in this gospel with a profound simplicity we must not miss. And that is Jesus is the true light. He is the true light that overcomes the darkness. He is the true light that stepped into the darkness. He is the true light that makes new life possible. So how will you respond? How will I respond? Question. Jumping from the early prologue of John's gospel, the gospel that is often described as the gospel of belief or faith, is this question. Will you embrace the light? Or will you be lost in the darkness? Will you receive the light? That's the first step. The greatest darkness in the universe is not out there somewhere, but it's here here somewhere. It's in your sinful heart and my sinful broken heart too. And the truth is, is we all need a light from the outside of us to rid the darkness within us. We are no match for the darkness. But we know someone who is. Will you receive the light? The Apostle Paul, religious zealot, encounters the risen Christ and notice how he encounters him on this dusty road to Damascus. This is not just a theological statement. It's a phenomenological one. In blazing light. The resurrected Christ appears and blinds Paul with such amazing light. And it is this moment of transformation that completely changes Paul's life. When you encounter the light of the world, you may not have that kind of experience. But when you encounter the light of the world, it changes everything. He changes everything. In Acts 26, 18, Paul describes the good news of the gospel and notice the language. That is, it is about what? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are set apart, sanctified by faith in me. The same gospel that transformed Paul can transform your life and mine. When we in repentance, that is acknowledging, owning, and turning from our sin and embracing in faith what Jesus has done for us on the cross and his glorious resurrection as we embrace him as our personal Lord and Savior, we are given new creation life. So have you embraced Christ? Have you experienced the new birth? Or are you lost in darkness? We can be lost in darkness even if we've been in church all our life or we're just coming back to church. And if you are lost, are you willing to be found? Are you willing? And if you have received the light, will you walk in the light?
The true light of the world has come not only to give us a new eternal destiny, but to profoundly change how we live each and every day, friends, here and now. Jesus said, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's the evil one. But I have come to give you life and give it abundantly. What does this new abundant life look like? It emerges when we walk in the light every day. When we walk in the light, we experience a new intimacy and a growing intimacy with Christ. As we enter Jesus' yoke of apprenticeship and follow him every day and become part of Jesus' new creation community, that's the local church. In his first epistle, John puts it this way. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, what? We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. John is saying we do not walk in the light alone. We walk with other brothers and sisters in a local church community who have also embraced the true light of the world. As we walk in the light together in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the true light of the world, transforms us in our communities, in our cities. Because when we walk in the light, there is a radical reordering of our heart's loves. When we walk in the light, it affects how we spend our money, our time. When we walk in the light, it means things like embracing our vocational faithfulness, of doing justice, of affirming the sanctity of every human life, of maintaining sexual purity within the bonds of heterosexual marriage. Walking in the light utterly abandons any form of self-righteousness toward others, but rather patiently forgives others and sacrifices our time and talent and treasure for others. Are you willing to receive the true light? And will you walk in the true light? And will you shine the light? Jesus' most famous sermon, he tells us as followers of himself that we reflect his light to the world, that we are the light of the world. He tells us to shine our light before others so they can see our good work and give glory to God in heaven, our Father. Jesus is saying to all of us who embraced him that how we live and work every day ought to point to others around us to the true light of the world. So let me ask you a question that I'm asking myself. What is your life saying to others? To your spouse, your roommate, your fellow classmates at school, your colleagues at work, your neighbors who live next door? See, we not only shine the light of Christ to others through how we live and work, we also shine the light of Christ through our verbal witness of Christ. I love how 20th century novelist and poet Madeline Engel puts it beautifully. She says, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. The paradox of the light of the world is when we see him as he is, we see our sin, but we also see the beauty and wonder of the greatest lover of our soul. Are we taking the opportunity to share the good news with others God has placed in our life? The Advent season is an amazing time of year where friends, neighbors, classmates, colleagues are likely to come to church if you invite them. So will you? People are spiritually curious. Spirituality is a constant conversation in our time. The question is, will they be introduced to Jesus? 
One of the moments I love most at Christ Community throughout the year is our Christmas Eve services where we close each one with silent night and candlelight. Set against the darkness of this sanctuary and the darkness of our world, together we lit light candles, right? And the darkness is pushed back. This place is just ablaze with light. That moment, we are reminded in very real ways that the true light has come and that we at Christ, at, as Christ's church are his light in a dark world. But we are also reminded of a day to come when darkness will be no more. It is that future day the gospel writer describes for us John, the same writer in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. As John looks down the corridor of time, he gets a glimpse of the new heaven and new earth that are to come, and he sees a new city, the city of Jerusalem, and he describes it this way, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. That's Jesus. By its light, the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. In the midst of so much darkness in our world, in our lives, in our communities, in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, how grateful I am that Jesus, the true light, has come. And how I long for that day when he will return and set the world to right. How about you? Christmas is more than remembering a Bethlehem manger. It's about looking to a glorious future, an eternal life in the new heavens and new earth where darkness and sin and pain and grief and heartache can never be found again. And we, his children, will at last find the deepest longings of our hearts fully and overwhelmingly met. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of a dark world that can discourage us and distract us and overwhelm us, how grateful we are that we have the good news that the true light has come. 